Welcome back to Buzz on Book Biz. My podcast is all about writing, publishing, and marketing books. And today my guest is America's premier ghostwriter and celebrity interviewer, Glenn Plaskin. He has interviewed a vast array of celebrities and politicians for profile articles in New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, Cosmopolitan, US Weekly, just to name a few. And his interview subjects have included such figures as Katherine Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, Meryl Streep, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Harrison Ford, Sylvester Stallone, Nancy Reagan, Betty White, Diane Sawyer, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Gates, and Tony Robbins, and this is not a complete list. And he's also ghostwritten books for a range of other celebrities and uh, professional uh, surgeons, other people in, in the professional space. And he's got several new books out. One is called Cutthroat, which is by a surgeon. One is called Universal Rules. And uh, he has so much to tell us all about the business of being a ghostwriter. I'm very excited. We have not had a ghostwriter on the show yet. So welcome, Glenn. Oh, thank you so much. Really nice of you to have me here. Thank you. So this is an impressive list of celebrities that you've had the privilege of interviewing and writing books for. Tell us how you became a writer and a ghostwriter. Well, the funny thing is, is that I never intended to be a writer. That's not what I'm trained for. <laughs> I'm trained as a classical musician. Um, my mom and dad sent me to a conservatory of music for college. So I went there for nine years. I got a, you know, a, a bachelor degree and a master degree. And I was working on my doctoral degree when I was around 25. And the idea was that I was going to become a performer. But when I was around 25, I realized I didn't want to do this anymore. Um, it was very nerve wracking for me to perform and I didn't enjoy it. And I knew I was going to wind up probably teaching other people how to play the piano. And I really didn't want to do that. So I quit. <laughs> and my mom and dad thought, oh, he must be nuts after all this money we put into his education. <laughs> and now he quit. So what I did is I had a book idea. I had never written a book. I had never re even written a college paper. But I always tell people, if you want to do something, you're selling your idea, not yourself. And I had a great idea, which was to write a biography of the most famous classical pianist in the world, who was at that time Vladimir Horowitz. So I came to New York and I called 15 publishers all on my own. And I got them all interested in the idea of the book. And then I went to the William Morris Agency uh, to the chief literary agent there. And he said, well, what have you written? I said, nothing. He said, well, what have you had published? I said, nothing. He said, then what do you have? And I pulled out my list of publishers and I said, all these publishers, you know, are interested in this book idea. <laughs> so he said, where's your book proposal? <laughs> I didn't even know what a book proposal was. Well, skip ahead. <laughs> I wrote a book proposal and he sold it to an American publisher. And that was my first book that I sold. It was my book. It was not a ghostwritten book. I'm the author of the book. And it took a long time to write. It took three years. It's a 600-page book with 2,000 footnotes. And when it was published, um, it was on the front page, literally, of the New York Times art section, you know, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times. It was all over the place because it was the first book ever written about this person. And suddenly, you know, I had credibility as an author, and it was reviewed extensively. 
And then after it was published, my agent said to me, well, would you like to write another book? I said, no, I hate writing books. I want to interview celebrities. So it turns out I had this weird talent for this, although I have no training. And so, you know, the first one that I ever interviewed was Carol Burnett, who I just love Carol Burnett. Everybody loves Carol Burnett. And then, you know, there were many others, Nancy Reagan and Lena Horne and Elizabeth Taylor and Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein was one of my all-time favorites. I interviewed him for the cover of Playboy magazine. And, you know, when you interview somebody in depth for hours at a time, a famous person or not a famous person, um, you become very emotionally close to that person temporarily, you know. And the trademark of all my interviews is that these were in-depth conversations with people. I was not so much interested in the surface part, but I was interested in knowing about how people felt. How did Nancy Reagan feel after this assassination attempt? How did she cope with the stress? Um, How did he cope with it? Um, What was it like living in the White House? How could she handle the stress of it? You know, these are the kinds of questions that I asked And um, I actually interviewed Mrs. Reagan twice and also knew Jacqueline Onassis because the former first lady was at Doubleday Publishers. So when my first book, Horowitz, was published, she had not wanted to buy the book. Maybe she thought I wasn't qualified to write it. But after it was published, she wrote me this beautiful note that's hanging on my wall, inviting me out to lunch and saying she'd like to work with me on something else. So I always tell people that being a journalist or a writer, it's like a passport to the world. Literally, for me, it was a passport to meeting people that I never otherwise would have met. For example, one day my phone rang and somebody said on the phone, hello, is this Mr. Plaskin? I said, yes. She said, this is Catherine Hepburn. (laughs) I said to her, no, no, this is just a friend playing a joke on me, right? She said, no, it's really me. Well, the reason she was calling was I had sent her my first book, autographed to her. And what I have found as an author is if you send an autographed book to anyone, famous or not, they will answer you because, you know, an autographed book is is somehow, you know, a tangible record of something that seems important. So she called me because she liked the book and she invited me to lunch. So I went to have lunch with Catherine Hepburn. Mm -hmm. And after that, we became friendly. And over the years, I knew her for the next eight years. And we did many interviews together. And I just loved her wit and her sense of humor and her bossy nature. And I also started uh, introducing her to other famous people. Like I brought Peter Jennings there one day for lunch. And I brought Calvin Klein there one day for lunch. So what I began to do was network with these celebrities and they became much more than just um, interview subjects. And in 1992, Oprah Winfrey did an entire show on a book I wrote called Turning Point, Pivotal Moments in the Lives of America's Celebrities. And the point of the book was I interviewed each celebrity about a crisis that they had faced in life, how they dealt with it, how they overcame it, and what they learned from it. And in the book is Elizabeth Taylor and Dolly Parton and Malcolm Forbes and Meryl Streep and all kinds of people and Diana Ross. And they talk about moments in their lives. And what I discovered from all this stuff I'm telling you is that these people are just like us. They have emotional problems. 
They have family problems. They have health problems. They have career problems, just like, you know, we all do. And so what I'm trying to say is there's a common denominator. And I found that if you could talk to someone famous, like a real human being and not, you know, just say, oh, tell me about your movie. Or, tell me about this. If you could make a, a connection with them, an emotional connection, then you could get a good interview. So Oprah Winfrey did a whole show on the book, and so did Joan Rivers, Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, and Geraldo. So it, it seemed to strike a chord. So that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> well, it's interesting because you've answered my next question, which was how did you get to the level of interviewing celebrities and it sounds like it was through your first book and that just sort of opened the door for you to enter into another strata of society and have access to amazing people. Well, yes, honestly, um, the first book, sometimes I think back on it and I say, how did I ever have the nerve to think I could write a book? I mean, I have no experience. I still have no experience. I mean, I have no training is what I mean. I still have no training. And I thought, this is a good example of visualization. And I always tell people this. If you want something in life, you must visualize it. It's like a mental dress rehearsal. Think about it and keep thinking about it. And I will admit that one of my talents was the ability to connect to people. In other words, I would call people up and I would, you know, I would sell what it was I wanted to sell, but not in an aggressive way. But visualization is really key. Mm -hmm. And I used to think when I was a little kid, I had a very, um, I got all D's and F's in elementary school, pretty much. And the, um, the school told my mom that I had a low IQ. And so I was always trying to um, find a way to become, I thought, what could I become so that I wouldn't be a loser, you know? And so I would start to, um, what's the word, like um, fantasize about celebrities. I lost myself in this kind of dreamy world of celebrities. I never would have thought in a million years that I would one day meet first ladies, film stars, you know, uh, you know, uh, CEOs of major corporations and all the kinds of people I've met. And but now here it is. Um, I'm nearly 100 years old. No, I'm not that old. And I've written <laughs> 25 books. And the books are all different. Some of them are books written by me. Like one of my favorites is a book I wrote about my dog. It's called Katie, Up and Down the Hall, The True Story of How One Dog. Uh, what is the title? The True Story of How One Dog. That's funny. Turned Five Neighbors into a Family. That's the book. Yeah. And um, it's not really about the dog. It's, a, it's about how three generations of neighbors became so close before, during, and after 9-11 that they became like a family. Hmm. And this book, um, oddly enough, Calvin Klein hosted the book party because we stayed friends all those years. And so even years after I first met him, he hosted the book event. And um, that was a very meaningful book to me. And then some of the other books, um, you know, sometimes business people hire me or motivational people hire me. Um, one of the new books is from Pastor Gregory Dickow. Um, I'd written a previous book with him 10 years ago, and I had a new idea for this book. It's called Soul Cure, 
how to heal your pain and discover your purpose. Well, the thing that's good about this book is we all have pain. And um, we're all trying to evolve and discover more and more what we're meant to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that I thought of for this book is your happiness really is not about what you have on the outside. People sometimes think, oh, if only I had a bigger house or if only I had a better husband or, you know, um, or if only I had this much money, then I would be happy. And then what you find is that you're no happier then than you were to begin with. And so true happiness emanates from the inside out, not from the outside in. And that's why this thing is called soul cure. This book means that if you can cure your soul from some of the things we all deal with, um, anxiety, worry, depression, fear, resentment, um, lack of forgiveness, if you can heal those things, then you can have a happier life on the outside. So these books do touch kind of a deep chord in me sometimes. Um, there's another book out that's called Cutthroat, A Surgeon's Fight Against Big Government, Corrupt Businessmen, and a Broken Healthcare System. He's a spinal surgeon who hired me to um, write a book about his rather dramatic experience as a doctor. I have another doctor book coming out in November with a vascular surgeon, a pioneering vascular surgeon about the medical industry too. And sometimes people hire me and I don't know anything about what they're talking about. I think, please hire somebody else. I don't know anything about this. But what you'll find as a writer is that it's like going to school. You can kind of learn it, you know, as you go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I I know that for a fact um, as a journalist, former journalist, and and I've done a bit of ghostwriting. And I, I know that you... If you have an inquisitive mind and you're a good researcher, you can start putting all of the pieces together. And also, if you're a good interviewer and you can pull a lot of that out of your interviewee uh, that you're writing the book for. And uh, that's exciting that you've learned so much about the health industry at such a crucial time. So do you have a favorite interview or some memorable surprises in your interview experience? Oh, and by the way, if you ever want to interview... Uh, the author of the cutthroat book, let me know. Okay. I'm sorry, your question was? Um, Do you have a favorite interview or some memorable surprises in your interview experience? Oh, well, that's a book in itself, I guess. Um, I guess my one of my favorites was Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, When you meet a movie star, they usually don't look like the way they look on the screen, you know, they, they, they <laughs> yeah. may be smaller, or taller, or bigger, or they just may not look the same. Um, but she looked like Elizabeth Taylor when she walked down the stairs of the Plaza Atene Hotel. She looked like a film star. It was just unbelievable. And she came up to me face to face. And the first thing I said to her was, oh, you have beautiful skin, which she did. And she said to me, would you like to touch it? I said, okay. So she took my hand on her face and I said, wow, it's so smooth. I said, what's your secret? And she said, sesame oil. I put sesame oil all over my face. Now you see, this is a natural moment. This is nothing to do with an interview. I'm trying to, not even trying, just naturally establishing some sense of rapport with her. And we were having a good time. 
And then I looked down at her hand and I said, is that the ring? Because she was wearing this um, 33 karat Krupp diamond. <laughs> and I said, she said, yes, would you like to see it? And she took it off her hand and threw it to me. She just tossed it over to me. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God. And I said to her, well, do you want it back? And um, <laughs> I, I tossed it back. And then we started the interview. And it was a very memorable interview because she was. this was during the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm. And she was talking about how gay men were being discriminated against because everybody thought at that time in the 80s, you know, that it was the gay, only the gay men who were spreading HIV. And of course, we now know that, you know, HIV is a worldwide uh, problem, heterosexual and intravenous drug users and all kinds of people could uh, get or pass HIV. So um, she was very um, incensed about this subject because her friend Rock Hudson was dying of the disease. So it was a very emotional interview and one of my most um, memorable. And of course, another greatest one of all time was Catherine Hepburn. You know, she was, uh, you know, one of the greatest film stars of mm -hmm. the 20th century. And the idea of sitting with her and having her talk to you about anything was pretty, you know, unusual. She would always have me for lunch. It was ham and cheese and soup, 1230. And you'd go over to her house for lunch. And one day I brought her this beautiful chocolate cake. It was a very beautiful cake. And she opened the box. She looked at the cake. She said, oh, fascinating. And then she called down to her maid, Nora. She said, Nora, come up and get the cake. She said, this cake is too good to eat for this. Meaning she wasn't going to serve the cake at my interview. She's going to save the cake. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, Another day, Peter Jennings brought some chocolate brownies to her. And I had told her ahead of time, his wife is going to make you some brownies. And she said, we'll see. She had something in mind. It turns out she had a very good recipe for chocolate brownies. So she made them ahead of time. And when dessert time came, she called down to the maid, bring up the brownies. Well, she tasted Peter Jennings brownie. She tasted hers and she looked him in the face and she said, mine are much better. <laughs> you do such a good impression of her voice. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But she was very, very charming and funny. And um, I'm about to be in a, a documentary about Catherine Hepburn that's being produced in London. Um, mm -hmm. They're coming here next week to film some of it where we're going to talk about Catherine Hepburn and her legacy, you know. Wonderful. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I really appreciate you talking about the, the vast number of people that you have interviewed, the, the diversity of them and how important they were, some of them, but but how you dug down deep into them and not just talking about the surface issues. What and and does that is that to you what a successful ghostwriter needs to have is that ability to get deep into that person? Well, whether you're a writer or an interviewer or a ghostwriter or a collaborator, whatever you want to call it because I'm not really so much a ghost lately. My name's usually on the book also. So I think of it more as a collaborator, you know? Mm -hmm. But no matter what it is, um, I don't know, maybe it's just my inquiring nature, but I do think um, psychological, um, human psychology is plays into all of this. Mm -hmm. Meaning, uh, maybe it's because I've gone to therapy for the last 40 years. I think that has a lot to do with it. But a lot of the questions I ask sometimes seem to be a little disarming to them. I don't mean overly personal, but, you know, 
I would try to dig down a little deeper. For example, I was having lunch once with Diana Ross, and there came a point in the lunch where she uh, started to cry a bit. And you might say, well, why was she crying? Well, I had asked her about her film career and why after the movie Lady Sings the Blues, her film career really didn't go anywhere after that, not too far. And if you remember back in the 70s, uh, there were very few black um, film actors still. It was it was not that common as it is today. And um, I think she felt a genuine sense of um, sadness about this. That, you know, I think there was a certain level of discrimination because she was a great actress, too. Mm-hmm. And um, her career in films could have gone further. So that was a very human moment, wasn't it? You know, I'm sitting there having lunch with Diana Ross and she's um, revealing enough to get emotional about something that's pretty personal. So um, mm-hmm. that was um, those were the kinds of moments that I would often have. Honestly, this was not uncommon. And um, it was um, it was kind of um, surreal a little bit. You know, I would sometimes come back to the office. I worked full time at the New York Daily News at one time and somebody would say, where have you been? I said, oh, I've been to lunch with Catherine Hepburn or another day. Like, where have you been? I've been on a helicopter with Donald Trump. One day, Donald Trump and I went up in his helicopter for, uh, for an interview. And when we landed in Atlantic City on the roof of the hotel, I thought I was continuing with him. He said, no, no, you're you're not going. Uh, the interview is over for now. I said, well, where am I going? He said, you're going back to New York on my helicopter. So I flew back to New York all alone uh, with just the pilot and the stewardess. And um, he and I, this is long before he was president. I must say he was a very entertaining interview subject. You know, he was, um, you know, he was a real estate mogul at the time and not what he later became, but um, always very, very um, friendly and uh, open and congenial with with me and uh, also introduced me to his wife, Ivana Trump, and then later to his wife, Marla Maples, who I did interviews with, too. So I guess being a writer could be like, a you know, a, a gateway into adventure, you might call it, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I marvel that you could do an interview in a helicopter where the, the noise is so loud, how would you even hear him talking? Well, Sorry. I was tape recording it and there was a lot of background noise in the helicopter. There was, um, but it, it was okay. We It worked. The idea was to follow him around as much as possible and go wherever he went. So um, the helicopter he was using was a military grade helicopter. It had two rotors, not one. And it was, it was similar to Marine One, which, you know, the presidential one. So it was a pretty good one. But um, I found the whole thing very adventurous. It was like going to an amusement park. It's like you go on all the different rides, you know, uh, <laughs> lunch with Diana Ross one day, lunch with Catherine Hepburn the next, and then off to the uh, Washington to interview um, the First Lady. I mean, it was really rather surreal for me. And also, I, I will say it was emotionally quite, there were times when I I had fear, I had, I, I it wasn't like it was that easy for me mm-hmm. all the time. It wasn't really, um, I make it sound like it was just fun and games, but it really wasn't. Um, 
there was a tremendous amount of research and preparation before each interview. Mm -hmm. And there was the stress of going to meet the person, which is extremely stressful for me. I was usually pretty afraid. And then the best part was once I got there and we started talking, it, it kind of got more comfortable. Um, and then after the interview is over, you have to go back and spend hours and days writing it. So it's not an easy process. The whole thing from the research to the actual interview to the to the writing of it and then the publishing of it, it's a long process. And um, the pressure of it was quite a lot. So I'm not saying it was easy. Right. But, but it wasn't easy, but it was fun in some ways. It's especially fun now talking about it, looking back on it, because at the mm -hmm. time it was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Right. Right. Well, but you did it and you have been incredibly successful by doing the ghostwriting and the interviewing and writing your own books. So one, that's wonderful that you've got such a range of skill. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time to share with us about your experience as a ghostwriter and a writer. Do you have anything that you would suggest to would-be ghostwriters out there or people that might consider hiring a ghostwriter? Do you have some pieces of advice? Yes, but before I say that, I'll just say for anyone out there who was ever underestimated as I was as a child and told I had a low IQ, as my mother used to tell me jokingly, she said, you did so much with so little. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> that was funny. Actually, she meant it funnily. But I mean, it's true that I was not a good student. And I don't think people should be judged on their uh, academic uh, record. I mean, I later became a really good student in high school, all mostly A's or B's. But early on, I wasn't. So I always tell people, don't let anybody else tell you what you can do. Exactly. Do what you want to do. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. As far as advice about ghostwriters or ghostwriting, well, I never set out to be a ghostwriter. Uh, so my advice would be, um, if you want to get into it, um, I guess you need to meet somebody who needs help. And if you're naturally a good writer and a good interviewer, it's uh, not that hard. You can do it. You know, you record the interviews and um, shape it and put it together. And it's a collaborative process. It's not something you do on your own. You know, I, I, I do multiple drafts with clients. Just this morning, I was on the phone with a 94-year-old client, and we were both reading over the book together, and he was making corrections as we went. So that's the way we do it. Um, so for somebody who wants to become a ghostwriter, you know, um, it's or a let's say a collaborator, it's possible. And for people who are looking for a good ghostwriter, you know, there's a number of ways to find one. There's a new almanac out by Simon and Schuster, and I wrote an article in it about ghostwriting. People could refer to the article um, if they want to. Um, and um, that's the great thing about being a writer is you never know, you know, what kind of subject you might be working on. However, I will say this, don't take a subject that you totally dislike or that you have no expertise in. I try to avoid that. Once or twice I've done it and I've regretted it. It's very painful. If you know you're not interested and you don't want to do it, then maybe it's better not to do it. Right. 
no, I think you're correct with that. If if you can't put your heart into it yourself, you're it's going to be reflected in how you write. So, uh, believe it or not, I can fake it. I can even make <laughs> it. I can make it good, even though I didn't like it. But it's inwardly, it's painful. It's hard. It's like people. It's like people who go to jobs, you know, and they hate their job, but they go anyway. You know how painful that can be. So it is. Well, thank you again, Glenn, for your time and sharing your stories, your wonderful stories. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time to be on my show. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us at Buzz on Book Biz. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, could you give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast? That would be terrific. Information and links about today's guest are in the show notes. And if you'd like to connect with me, please visit my website, rochellewiseman.com. And my email is rochelle at rochellewiseman.com. So until next time, stay safe and read a good book. Bye for now.